Welcome to the Music of America podcast, where every week we visit a different state in America and meet a different guest in the music industry. Every day, Monday through Friday. We begin in Alabama and we end in Wyoming. I'm your host, Tom Pollard. Let's talk music here on the Music of America. The Music of America podcast continues this week. We're in Florida. We're going to begin in Winter Park and talk to our very own five-string jazz violinist, Daryl Dobson. That's right, five-string violin. We'll talk with him in just a moment. Discover your celebrity at the newest, hottest, most interesting and fun live music show to hit the scene in 50 years. It's called Flash Jam. Whether you perform live music or enjoy watching live music, Flash Jam has something for everyone. Flash Jam is a dynamic way for musicians to come together, perform, and compete for recognition and rewards. Whether you are new to the stage or an experienced musician, Flash Jam provides an exciting platform to collaborate and showcase all your talents. Musicians will perform hit songs with other random musicians who share a passion for that same particular song. Existing bands are featured, performing iconic songs to display new and emerging local talent and live music patrons participate by voting for their favorite musical combinations. It's all there at Flash Jam, coming to a market near you. Welcome to the show. Daryl Dobson, Water Park, Florida, and a five-string jazz violinist. I don't think I've ever seen a five-string violinist, much less a jazz violinist. So we can approach this in a lot of different ways. <laughs> let's talk about jazz violin, first of all, and then let's talk exclusively about a five-string uh, violin, okay? I just don't hear a lot of violins in jazz. What what caused that? Well, first off, Tom, let me thank you for having me on the show. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's wonderful what you guys are doing. So I really appreciate you uh, having me on the show. Yes, you're right about one thing. The, the occurrence of violin in jazz, in particular, is somewhat of a rarity. Uh, it seems like we had more jazz violinists you know, pre-60s than we do after it, although we've had some sensational players pop up. Um, you know, the, the history of jazz violin goes back to the swing era, and really? in particular, yeah, oh, absolutely. In particular, it's a guy named Stuff Smith who was considered to be, you know, the forerunner of, um, or one of the masters, certainly, of the jazz violin, the electric jazz violin. If you look around 19, between 1940 and 1960, stuff is actually playing with an electric pickup that's been engineered from him. It's kind of the birth of the electrified, right? Because we also have Charlie Christian, the guitarist, getting electrified back then. Mm -hmm. So now what happened is since then, um, there's been a guy, a violinist, John Blake. Um, but I think the thing that's interesting is after Stuff Smith, the occurrences of violin that I heard, which would have been by, by people like uh, Jean Luponti, um, or even some of the Indian violinists that I played with, uh, Radhakrishna on many of my recordings, and also the great El Shankar, the Indian violinist, were on my recordings as a guitarist. The interesting thing that I found was I could really never find uh, in my in my years, even in New York, a a violinist, a jazz violinist that did not did not have a classical approach to their music. By this, I mean a lot of violinists I hear since that time that 
claim to be jazz violinists sound more like they played and mastered classical European music first and then decided that they wanted to expand their repertoire with the, uh, the approach to jazz. Now, there's some commonalities in classical music and jazz. Certainly, the, you're dealing with the same instruments, essentially the same harmonic concepts. But jazz starts to, to be a little bit different. Uh, really, when you really look at America, when you expand the, the, the word jazz into really American music, and you can start to include blues and country and Appalachian and all mm-hmm. the stuff, it has a, a rhythmic excitement to it that classical music didn't, right? Because all of a sudden, you know, American music, we, we love drums. I mean, the Ludwig family in New Orleans puts together this drum set, and before you know it, the marching band is all in one place. So we love, we, we, we love drums. We love tapping our feet. We can't st- stand, sit still when we listen to music. In the classical world, it's a much more structured or uh, event. You know, uh, the orchestra requires, you know, a lot more logistics, financing, things like that. The early jazz groups were were, were an Appalachian blue. All these things were around what I call porch porch music, right? Gather right, at night, yeah. and, you know, small, smaller groups where now all of a sudden, if there's not 50 of us, if there's four or five of us, each, each person starts to really matter a, a lot more in the performance. And I think that's the excitement of jazz in particular is the fact that it's so dependent on the contribution of the players because there's no doubling of the players. By this, I mean, you know, many of my violin students that were going, and I, 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 of course, I can play classical music on the violin. Some of my violin students, I had to train in Suzuki method. Well, they were really tr- training more to be in a line of violins, right? The friend, I, I aspired to be a first violinist in the orchestra. Well, I'll sit there with four or five other first violinists and we'll all play the same music. The notion of more violins, it's almost like the big band where you might have four trumpets, but they're all playing the same thing, but you need that volume to fill up the concert hall, you know? Right, right. Now, the thing I started to discover on, on this topic of jazz and, and why it's so attractive is, you know, jazz in America it seemed it was it was very easy to adapt even to other cultures. Jazz has that flexibility in it and an openness to it that it's okay to break rules. Right? Like in other words, yeah. you have now jazz is all over the world in different shapes and forms. And, and maybe, you know, some of the purest, you know, tent maybe they, they have a problem with that. I really don't have it. I find that to be part of the beauty of, of jazz and the American music experience anyway, is because of the small ensemble. Because the ensembles in some cases are not even financed by anyone else but the musicians themselves. Uh-huh. Very few things to stop the music from being interpreted in different ways. Yeah, right. I, 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 I had a guest on here. I had a guest on here a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying that uh, jazz is as independent as the languages of the countries. So yes. German jazz is different than Italian jazz, which is different than French jazz, which is different than American jazz. And that's kind of what you're saying here. Exactly. Exactly. Um, it's important. You know, we, we've reached a point in our, our society and our world, and, and I noticed the change happening in the late 80s, is what I call the the, de- the deculturalization effect. By that, I mean, well, in America, we reveled in being multicultural. I grew up in New York, 
uh-huh. but all the different pockets, you know, whether it was uh, the Italian Americans, Jamaican Americans, Arabic Americans, Jewish Americans, each, I mean, each had their own little festival, San Gennaro. Each culture reveled in their identity in America, but also reveled in their ability to assimilate into this one language bond yeah. that kind of pulled us all together under a commonality. So, and that was, in a way, I feel like jazz started to epitomize that, that, you know, any culture could join in and contribute. Now, jazz is a very exciting thing, you know, and uh, if, if there's anything, I, I, because I'm such a culturalist, because I stand so much for preserving culture and not seeing everything as just like, not necessary like i'm just into this starting now my culture starts like last week i am not i don't need to know anything about a charlie parker i don't need to know anything about a culture and i need to just know about something that happened about three years ago and i've got my instagram account and i'm ready to go i don't i i yeah, that's not that's really i don't want to say i will be honest saying i don't like or dislike things but i think the net effect of that is ignorance and stupidity and very mediocre performances because when you look at the history of jazz in America, the Sidemen and Count Basie's band, the Sidemen and Benny Goodman's band became the band leaders 10 years later. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Almost, there was, there was a, you could just decide that you were great. <laughs> you, you had to, there was a, you know. If you even look at the early years of the bebop era with Parker, Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, those guys, and you right. got a young trumpet player, Miles Davis, who's really second base to Dizzy Gillespie at the time. He's the young apprentice. Well, eventually, in the next era, the cool era, you got Miles, you got Brubeck, you got all these guys that say, okay, we're moving away from all the notes and we're going to be cool. But here was the side man now became the leader. And then here comes Miles Davis bringing up a, a, a young Johnny Coltrane. The oddball that no one yeah. wants. You know, no one wants to play with Coltrane. No one wants Coltrane. To, Coltrane, Coltrane like knocked <laughs> the doors off jazz to me. You know, because yeah, all those guys you mentioned before with Gillespie, Charlie Parker, these guys, and Davis, they all did this, and they brought it. They made it mainstream. They made jazz more than cool. You know. Yeah, yeah. And then Coltrane comes on the scene. It's like. All right, boys, stand back. Here it comes. This is how it gets done. <laughs> it's like the uh, Hendrix. Yeah, like what uh, Hendrix did guitar. What Hendrix did with guitar. What Prince did with Hendrix. You know. Yes. Yes. Well, you know, there's an important. Now that you bring up, of course, Hendrix. Myself, as a as a young kid, in and I grew up in, born in Brooklyn, and grew up in Comac, Long Island, and man, I mean, you know, Jimi Hendrix was the cream, the coffee. I had to started to drink back then. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> was all about that i mean i remember when i finally you know said to my dad i said man i gotta i got some lessons and stuff you know and i i was so crazy about music i graduated high school a year early i was supposed to graduate in 74 i graduated 70 i took double i told my parents god this is not happening and it's funny because although my parents weren't musicians they were kind of open to this. They, they were, I think that i think my dad being kind of like a real estate guy was always concerned that because he loved jazz uh-huh. But he saw it as entertainment. You know, he used to go to 52nd Street and see Parker and Di- and, and all these guys, and he'd tell me the stories about it. I grew up listening to Nat King Cole. You want to get into a fight? Say something bad about Ella Fitzgerald in front of my mom. 
Okay. <laughs> um, so I grew up with that sound, but my sound was Hendrix. Yeah. The Beatles. I remember the one night when I first saw the Ed Sullivan show when they first, when he first introduced them. You know, I had never I had guitars and all this electric stuff, and man, I mean that was it. So when I'm into, uh, of course, New York, and you know, New York at the time is clearly not only the, the center of music in America; it's the center of music for the world. I mean, when you go in, I mean, whoa. I grew up with, I mean, every street's a rehearsal studio. And I'm talking not only Manhattan, I'm talking Queens. I'm just, Brooklyn, every borough, Long Island, it was the music business. It was wow. And then Broadway. And I mean, when you go into Manhattan and see the, you know, the fiddle players, you know, the upright players going from each gig to the next one with the wheels on their bases, rolling them down. I mean, the guitar players with their amp. I mean, it was the world I grew up in. So I knew I wanted to go and study music because what had happened was uh, Jimi Hendrix died in 1970. Yeah. And it, and it, uh, I, at the time, I was already playing in a lot of bars. I was like the young little crazy kid with the Afro that played and sounded like Hendrix. Uh-huh. So, a lot of the, I found myself constantly in, in, at age 16, 17, really, you know, the drinking age was only 18 back then for the bars. So I was always being, I was in bands with all the guys who sought out the young kid that was, you know, the hot little guitar player with the Strat and, and the Marshall and this and that. So right, yeah. I was already playing. And uh, I remember one time I was playing at Fort Washington with a, a rock band out there, No Self, great band. You know, these guys were playing. You know, a lot of bar, great bars. And, and the rock clubs were kind of cool back then. They were, like, really cool. Yeah. And Paul Broca and uh, Joey Rafano, good guys, good guys. And they kind of took me under their wing, and we were playing all the brothers, all this stuff. I had a great time. And then one night, uh, I'm looking down at the audience. I see a guy looking up at me. Long story short, it's a guy named Joe Salter. He's a jazz drummer. Uh-huh. He's, he's, he's playing with Weather Report and all these guys at the time. Really? And he said, yeah, and, and I get on stage and said, listen, I, I want you to join my band. Uh, and, and I said, well, what are you guys playing? He said, we're playing jazz. And I was so excited uh-huh. because at the time, this guy named John McLaughlin, Mahavishnu, had come right, out. Mahavishnu, right, right. And he had that heavy sound, but the guy was playing some chords I had never heard in my life. And from that point on, when I went and joined Joe's band, um, boy, I could talk so much about something, but I sat next to the piano player, Santiago, and, and, you know, these guys are playing, man, jazz and stuff, and I'm in it. I can, so I can improvise on anything at this point, but I don't understand all the chords. So I'm next to the piano players, and they're always helping me out. And, you know, the piano players kind of owned it back then. You know, we, right. we didn't have internet, so it's not like if you wanted to, you couldn't watch YouTube videos to learn how to play. Not that you can even now. However, uh, well, you can watch them, whether you end up playing, that's a whole other story. Anyway, <laughs> by the time Push It comes to shove, and I'm in New York, and I go and see Ma Vishnu, and they're playing in an arena, National Coliseum, the place is filled. You're talking a 50,000 play. Frank Zappa's opening up the show. Wow. I look at this guy with a double neck, Billy Cobham on drums. I've never seen or heard anybody, anything like this. Good, right? So I immediately say, Daryl, this is it. You got a choice right now. This guy owns it. This guy McLaughlin owns this guitar, okay? Yeah, yeah. J- J- he's not even he's not even singing like Hendrix. 
It's all instrumental. These guys, is, you know, you listen to this sound. It was captivated with no with no lyrics. None of us had heard music like that with no lyrics. And guess what? Mob Issue takes off to be the number one selling act for Columbia Records, blowing all their vocal productions out of the way. Okay. Well, you know, well, well, uh, McLaughlin, John McLaughlin is is from England. Yeah. So he's always had, you know, those affiliations there. Um, you know, of course, the thing that really kind of pulled him all the way was his affiliation with Miles Davis. It was through being in Miles's band. And, oh, I didn't and know that. I didn't know oh, that. The, 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 I think the most, what, what was considered to be the, the bridge album was Bitches Brew. Uh -huh. Talking about uh, early 70s there, where Miles Davis basically had what ended up being the Fusion Legion in his band. On the Bitches Brew album, he had John McLaughlin, Billy Cobham, Lenny White, Chick Corea, Herbie no Hancock. Wow. The whole, if you look at on that one record, it was a double set, double album set, Bitches yeah. Brew. And when you look at this Legion that was in the Bitches Brew band, and Miles is on electric trumpet now. He tells Chick Corea and Herbie Hancock, no more acoustic pianos. No kidding. No, 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 that's correct. And uh, so from that point on, Miles, what, what happens is Miles goes, is at the Newport Jazz Festival, I think it's maybe 1973, and they've invited Sly and the Family Stone to play. Oh, wow. As the story goes... You know, Miles, who's, you know, a, a traditionalist, they're cool, but much more reserved in terms of mannerisms, posture, you know, he's more spooky almost at times. He's, you can't figure out what the heck he's feeling or thinking. <laughs> right. When, as the story goes, he sits there and he's next to George Ween, the, the producer of the Newport Festival, and, and, and the fans are going nuts over yeah. Sly. Yeah. And so Miles says, shit, I gotta, I've got to, uh, I gotta make a change here. You know what I mean? Because, right, right, right. like, he, I feel old. I feel like I'm not playing that. So if you look from that point on, Miles takes the electric turn. He gets, you know, two drummers, electric bass. He says, it's all, I'm heading to rock. He, as the story goes, because as Lenny White told me, Lenny White, a great drummer who is a, a friend of mine, uh, he once was on my radio show, actually several times, Lenny just came on my show back in, uh, in 2007, goes to, that's when I stopped and really kind of had the solar show going. He said that, you know, Miles is kind of looking for Hendrix, but he couldn't yeah. kind of nail it down, so he ended up with McLaughlin. Wow, that's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, so what happens to me is at this point, now we got a problem in the life of Daryl Duff, right? It's 1973. You're just out of high school, right? Yep. Yeah, well, I graduated. You know, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's uh, I graduated in '73, so now we're talking. It's more like about '75. Okay. Right. Uh -huh. Right. I'm out early. I spend a year working, trying to figure out how do I find jazz and where is it. And most important, me being a Leo and having a hard time settling on being second base. <laughs> Daryl Dobson insisting on being the greatest. Like I want to be the next McLaughlin. Like I, I don't, I'm not in this to just be a, a, a working. Like I don't want to play club dates. I'm not in this to just be a working musician. Okay. I had to kind of, I kind of already done that, you know. Because uh, two years ago, I was playing in all these little rock bands around town, and you know what's so funny? I didn't even drink. I never, I haven't drunk my whole life. Right. So anyway, my my predicament in 1970. I'm, I'm out 73. Spend a year. My predicament in 74 is. 
So how do you know if you're great? How do, when do you know if you're really playing jazz or you're not? I said, well, Daryl, you got to get next to someone who's part of the history. They'll let you know. Right? You can't just like go study with the Fred, the, the great jazz guitarist in Comac, who's never played with a Miles Davis, who's never played with a Jones. I need to get, I need to, an apprentice relationship with someone who has historic lineage to jazz. And I was fortunate enough to find a brilliant, brilliant jazz composer, multi-instrumentalist, a, a, a bona fide piece of the history, uh, master Ken McIntyre. Ken McIntyre adopted a, a, a prefix named Maconda. He had was on Steeplechase Records. Many of my colleagues, friends at the time told me, you know, McIntyre was part of the avant-garde jazz era. He was another rebel. So Ken McIntyre, and you think of the name, you say, what is he, an Irish guy? No, he's, you know, bald-headed, dark complexion. Uh, I think of, of either Jamaican or maybe Trinidadian ancestry. My parents were from Jamaica. I'm a, born in, in Brooklyn, New York. But both my parents were first-generation Jamaicans. Jamaicans. Uh -huh. and, and, uh, but my father loved jazz, man. He, but people, and So when he finally, as a teenager, decided to move to America, the first thing he did, as he told us, I got to 52nd Street. And he said, when you went to 52nd Street, you could buy one bottle of beer. There were no, like, minimums at the table, like, you don't have to pay a drink. He said, I could buy one bottle of beer and drift from club to club. And he said that when you were drifting, you know, because this little section of the tower where all the right. jazz clubs are, yeah. he said, man, you'd be, there were, the musicians would be out on the sidewalk during their breaks. So you're standing there, Dizzy's talking at Parker, uh -huh, Monk right. is talking to so-and-so, and you're like, hey, guys, cool, bro, yeah. So it's just, a, you know, a beautiful cultural mingling but back then it's all well and good for you to say that you're the next miles davis and then people say well how come you're not up on the bandstand well we you know what i mean yeah, so right. when i pursued uh mcconda came back entire he had already recorded a, an album with the great eric dolphy who of course had already was was john coltrane's at the time when coltrane started to expand his band from being the quartet into a large ensemble Mm -hmm. He boarded Eric Dolphy to play uh, alto saxophone and bass clarinet. And, and that's what all of a sudden I realized that was Wakanda came back entire. The next generation after that, the avant-garde guys, Ornette Coleman, Wakanda McIntyre, Sam Rivers, these guys that were screaming through their horns. You could hear them literally go, ah, you know, yeah. this kind of thing. When I realized that Mac, as, as, as we would call him, uh, you know, was part of that lineage. I said, I found my man. He'll let me know if I'm playing jazz. He'll let me know if I'm great. Right, right. He was teaching, I was taught a program at a state university, Long Island, College in Old Westbury. I sought him out. I went down to the school. I, I, I don't even know if I found him. I, I registered immediately to, wow. to, to do my bachelor's degree. I, I remember I found the receipt for my first full-time semester as a full-time college student, you know how much it was? Oh, $660. Wow. A semester? Per semester. 
<laughs> and uh, uh, now, what, what is it? I mean, Probably yeah, ten yeah. times that, right? Well, you have to go. You have to go get loans. <laughs> My dentist said, "Well, you now there were more expensive schools at the time. I could have gone to Berkeley. I could have gone to yeah. Manhattan School of Music. But guess what? They did not. I needed someone. I didn't want to study with someone that had great credentials. I'm a doctor in music. Mm-hmm. But right. have you have you played with Dolphy? That's what I want. Have you played with Train? I need more. I can, you know what I mean? Anyway, I found my man. And uh, I remember my first day of class, I'm scared shitless. I walk into class. I don't even have a small amplifier yet. I still have my Fender Stratocaster and my Marshall. I, I roll it in. A half stack Marshall into a, when I look. I notice it's about 40, still first day of class, the class is filled, right? Filled. Okay, okay. Freshman. I'm so, I'm scared, nervous, but I look and I notice, I see him sitting on a stool and, buddy, you go look out, out at photos of Ken McIntyre, right? He's a uh, very, he can be an intimidating guy until you get to know him, until you gain his respect. And... I see him sitting on stooling, going over some notes and stuff, but I see over to the far side of the room, there's like an ensemble set up, like a quartet, you know, piano, drums, bass, and, and it appears these are his, his older students that have been with him a while, right? Right. So, okay. I, so I roll in and I notice he looks at me and almost kind of gives me the eye, like, why are you bringing that huge goddamn amplifier in here? You know what I mean? Like, because <laughs> I, I, I look over at Jim. And Jim, Jim was a guitar, one of the seniors guys who I became good friends with. And, and Jim had a little amp, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And so it's funny because after the, the story. So anyway, uh, Mac says, listen, I want you all to put your name on the board. And I'm just going to go down in order and listen to you play and determine, you know, what's going on here and what you're going to do for the rest of the semester. But they said he stands up and he says, but let me make one thing clear. If you're here because you think this is going to be a fun elective, I want you to leave right now. If you're here because you want to be good, I want you to leave right now. He said, I'm not interested in teaching anyone unless they want to be great. And I said to myself, boy, have I found my man. Yeah. <laughs> That's great, though. That's right? right? It's almost like that stupid really movie where... where yeah, when the students just move and say, you know, step forward, but everyone steps backwards, you know what I mean? I right, like, right. Now, I tell, I tell myself, why don't all you all just leave right now, right? Uh-huh. I know this, but I know I'm going to take a beating here, right? Because this guy is pretty tough, but I know I found my man. Cause, and, I, and, and so what happens is, you know, oh, some people leave. Half the class empties right then. Oh, man. that That's going to yeah. be, yeah. be freaky. <laughs> Dude, so now he starts going down the board and he's chewing them up like freaking rice cakes, baby. Joe, Joe, huh? Tom Pollard, what are you going to do? Right. Oh, uh, Mr. Mac, I'm going to play uh, piano. Well, well, go ahead. What is that? No, 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 Tom, no, 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 that, no, what? No, 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 this kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. And now you got to say, am I going to take my beating or am I going to leave? And several of the beating was too hard. They said, this is maybe Mr. Max, this is not for me. Anyway, finally, only about three of us left is young Daryl Dobson. He's only 19 years old. He doesn't know. He played a little jazz. Okay, Daryl Dobson. Right. And I've already seen 
without, I've seen this whole classroom empty. There's only a handful left that are going to hang with this guy. And I said, you I said, well, go ahead and play. And I just closed my eyes. I don't, I'm, this is not going to be good. I'm so fucking nervous. <laughs> no, no, I don't even, I, what am I going to tell this ensemble to play? I don't have no sheet music. Yeah. Right, I just start playing like this little. Remember the little thing Hendrix played at Woodstock to end. Do boom, 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 boom. It's a little little blues thing. Instrument called the instrumental jam. I start playing that. I get about thirty seconds in, and I hear somebody whistle really loud. You ever see somebody whistle when they put their fingers in their mouth? Yeah, yeah. I hear. And I look up and he looks at me and he says, don't you ever, ever come in front of me and play shit like that again. No kidding. Wow. Yes. Right. And I said, well, Mr. Matt, I'm really nervous today, but I have a tremendous amount of respect for you. And the bottom line is, is I'm here because I really need to know how to play jazz. I really need, I told her, I said, I need to know from you that I, I, I know how to do this. I said, I can play rock and all this stuff. I said, I said, but I'm not going, I said, I'm not going away. I signed up for this class and I need to know what the first thing is I'm going to do for next week to play for you. I'm a cocky kid because I know I, I can't walk away. If I walk away, I'm going to quit guitar. I find something else to do. Uh-huh. He looked at me and he said, his whole demeanor changed. He said, okay. All right. Jim, go high. Jim, come over here. Take Daryl over there next to you and show him how to play the, the minor ninth chord on guitar. And he gave me some instructions on what to do for next week. Uh-huh. I said, thank you, Mr. McIntyre. He said, okay. It next opens up, that, opens up the door to the minor ninth, and now you're in a whole new realm, right? Right. What happens is, is now the rule is, if you want to play, you don't have to play for him every week, but you get to the class and put your name on the board, right? But that was only about 20 of us left, maybe 10, I don't know, 15, 20. Yeah. For the next sem- whole semester, I my name is, I'm getting to the class early to make sure I'm number one yeah. on the board. By the time we get to maybe, you know, the eighth week or the seventh, eighth week of the semester, he says, he's my friend, he says, Daryl, and, and, and I'm good. He says to me, listen, by the end of the semester, he, he respects me as a student, really a lot, because I already had a huge, I had already studied the, the first two books of the Berkeley method of guitar, so it's not like this kid is, is just, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I believe by the end of the first semester, I, I passed the threshold where he said, okay, this kid's a good student. He's not going away. And I remember, and he says, listen, Daryl, I got some people that are trying to hide from me right now. He says, you're good. You're, you're good. He says, I want you you keep keep going. And uh, a long story short is, I was there in my second year. I got actually a little gig with Stanley Tarantino. I stuck in the, his dressing room in Manhattan, and 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 I became a sub for a little tour. And he knew Mac. And uh, I remember the last time I spoke to Kenny Mac was uh, my last class I had with. You know, I've been about three year point. Yeah. I had already taken all my music core classes, and right. I remember he like he liked to. I was trying to play 
he was impressions of some cold train so at this point i'm a very i'm an advanced student you know he's right you know and uh i remember he says to me oh the, oh, the drummer's messing up daryl let me play drums and, oh, really? <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, no, no, you're playing too good. I want you to play drums because I'm, I'm, I'm having a good time. And I get through, and, and, and I remember looking down at him, and he says, well, for that class, you know what I mean? And he said, wow, that was a dazzling display of technical virtuosity. However, I still have to insist on maybe, you know, a little bit more feeling, but yes. And I said to myself, oh, my God. I just got my answer. Yeah. <laughs> this guy, McIntyre, looked me dead in the face and said, Yeah, you're you you go. Now go. You can fly now. So that was the golden moment. I had learned from oh, a yeah. jazz master and um from that point I drifted more. You know, stayed in Manhattan, the fusion scene was still vibrant, but things changed drastically by eighty three. So rather than jump into 83, Daryl, let's talk about music that you sent me today. And one of the songs yes. that we're going to talk about is Yardbird Sweet. I had a hard time with yes. that song. I'm going to tell you, I had a hard time with that song. Because with me, jazz, I have to see it live. I've got to feel the experience of the musician. You know what I'm saying? And, yes. and, and this song was so busy for me, I had a hard time following it. So talk to me about Yardbird Sweet, how that came about, and what's going on in there. Well, you know, this this recording, uh, String Jazz Theory and Yardbird Sweet, that's a classic Charlie Parker song, you know? Uh -huh. yeah. um, you know, part of the thing is I I love uh, very, very syncopated and very rhythmically involved music. So uh, in, in, in the studio version of Yardbird Sweet, you know, what's probably happening is, is because the drums are so rhythmically complicated and involved, you know, you almost have to focus a little bit, maybe more on the bass player, who's kind of like more like walking and moving along. You know, but okay. it is a it's a, it is a rambunctious version of Charlie Parker Yardbird Suite. When you look back at the original versions, bebop, you know, the drummers are not playing like that. I'm almost playing Yardbird Suite like I'm in the Coltrane Court. Like I, I I'm trying to be more like Elvin Jones, okay, in that okay. that rather than than the traditional. So when you look at my new album, String Jazz Theory, the jazz pieces are, although they are all historically significant, my approach to everything right now, especially on the electric five-string violin, which is a very new instrument, is really Coltrane. That's gotcha. the, and the rhythm section is, is Coltrane. It's free to be as rambunctious as possible. That is such a good word to describe this, too, because that, that that makes it make sense to me, you know? Yes, yes. And, and, and I'm used to, like, because the drums are so intricate and so busy in this song, it's yes. almost like you guys were battling. And that's how I listened to it, but I didn't listen to it through the ears of the bass. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to do that now and it'll make more sense. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this yeah. is Daryl Dobson from Winter Park, Florida. And this is his first song we're going to hear today. And this is Yardbird Sweet. Thank you. 
makes more sense when you listen to it the right way. Daryl Dobson <laughs> with the Yardbird Suite, or his version of uh, Charlie Parker's Yardbird Suite on the Music of America podcast. B. Normous Productions has been producing and recording music videos for over 20 years. After 20 years as a performer, owner Van Verhoeven decided to get back to that which he loved the most, and that's production. After the tutelage of Jordan Valeria, he opened up his own place in Millican, Colorado. High-end instruments, high-end tools, all on hand to make your sound compete with your favorite records. He has one goal in mind, and that's for you to look and sound as pro as possible. So go out and make some records. Go make some videos. Be Normous Productions. They're on Facebook, or you can find them at BeNormousProductions.com. Daryl, I want to have you back just to talk about history of jazz. It's, no, I'd love to. I'd love to. I'd love you, to. You just, you got so many stories and such knowledge and such, it's just fascinating. But I, this is about you and about your, uh, your music. And you brought up a five string violin. So I want to talk about that and talk about a, the next song we're going to hear, Samba Pati. Mm -hmm. So let's see how those tie together. But first, tell me about the five string violin. Where did that come from? Where'd you have well, you know, the, the five string is, is, is somewhat new in terms of, you know, its appearance uh, and, and its struggle to find a home, yeah. you know, because, um, you know, the five-string violin is essentially, depending how you want to look at it, it's either a, a regular violin with a low C string or it's a viola with a high E. So the oh, appearance wow. of it, it's, it's, it, it allows me to be both uh, a, a violist and a, a violinist. And, of course, with my students, it allows me also to teach cello, which is essentially the same tuning as a viola. Uh -huh. I became I I basically you know since we we ended up talking about eighty three you know I started gathering tracks from my first album as a guitarist in the eighties. By the time uh, up to three years ago, I was strictly a guitarist with seven albums, and a lot of them are like I've been in Guitar Player magazine, Downbeat magazine, so people knew me as a jazz fusion guitarist. When COVID hits, I sell everything. I'm living in Boca Raton. Everyone's masking up music. Every everyone it's all dead. I sell everything. I'm down to my acoustic guitar, three maybe more shorts, and I grabbed the what's left really left of my my family. Uh, most of my folks have passed on, etc. And what's left is my daughter, my two grandchildren. I sell it all, and I go and buy a really big boat. I mean, a big one, a fifty-two footer, and I I stay on the water living until COVID passes. When I'm on the boat, I learned a lot, and I started to develop in my mind a thing called string jazz theory, and it, it's a system of, of playing all string instruments. There's a universal concept I developed that allowed me to basically see the fingering patterns for all instruments. I mapped it all out in my head. I, I already knew how to do it on guitar. I, I said to myself, I need about two years to, to, to put all my music knowledge onto the violin, this electric five-string violin. Mm -hmm. I think the reason was also two reasons. I was bored of guitar. I had already seven albums, you know, my whole life, guitar, guitar, guitar. Uh, and I was always, do, always doing things to my guitar to, to make it sustain more. And here was the beautiful violin because of bowing. You can only do two things with a string. You can pluck it or bow it. Right, well, most, right. of my life, most, my, most of my life, I was a plucker. And now I'm a bower. So the that's why I did it. And I found the funny thing is I transferred this knowledge. You know, Ken Mack had said to me, he, he found me practicing a violin when I was in college. And he screamed at me and said, put that away. 
I'm too busy working on you as a guitar player. I don't ever want to see that again. So I did. I put it away. Um, but I knew, he said to me, you can probably move on to another instrument but in less than five years. So most people take about five years if you really add. I figured I needed about two. I got off the boat, and uh, that was what, end of 2021. I bought the five-string violin at the end of 2021. And here we you've are. Just been playing, you've only been playing it that short period of time? That is correct. You're a genius. <laughs> That's what... Well, you, technically, technically uh, and, and the album was also recorded. And I played all the parts on that album. The drummer you're hearing is me. On the bass the next, player, on, yeah. this, on, on that album or on the next song or both? Or on all of them. On all of them. The last, the last the Yardbird Suite, I'm playing all the parts. Was it just a, a decision that I've just got to do this? Or yeah. Was it, was it a kind of a, a spontaneous thing like, hey, that'd be kind of fun to do? Or was No, I really, I, I really wanted to, you know, I wanted to get back to music, uh -huh. but I really felt like I didn't have much more left to say on the guitar. I got it. I was just bored with it. I couldn't sit with it any longer. And I... On my recordings, I was always featuring great violinists. My first recording in the, in, in the late 80s, the Mind Electric featured India's most revered violinist, El Shankar. In fact, my, the whole Mob Vishnu Orchestra was damn near on my first album. Really? And Yes. And in, in 2016, I did a recording long distance between my studio here and a studio in Chennai, India, with the great uh, Nabeli Radhakrishna, the Indian double-neck violinist, who's also friends with Shankar. Wow. So also, uh, I've been featuring violinists on my recordings because of my love for that sound. But here's the thing. None of them can swing. So my thing is, is to be different. I found the opportunity to go on to a whole new instrument that very few people even played with. And I don't. I didn't have to approach it now from anything. I, I, if you say, well, Daryl, who's your... Who are you trying to emulate on violin? I go, um, no one. I'm just playing music from two dimensions. That's the key. Because some of what I'm playing is I, listen, I transformed all my scales and arpeggios and technical data to the violin. I did, in that two years' time, practice like a maniac. I mean, I wore through a bow, okay? <laughs> I mean, we went through a lot of rosin. I mean, we were at it, but it was accelerated learning. Uh -huh. I, 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 it's like having the map open going, I don't even need to be here. I just follow the freaking map. Bang, you play. It's almost like, remember the Matrix, the movie? Oh, yeah, yeah. Here's my moment. I'm laying in the chair. I know Kung Fu. I know jazz violin. <laughs> so that's really it I'm on the recording if you look at string jazz theory there's one original song the very end song navigating the simulation which is an original with a real drummer a young drummer out of seattle um the others are all me playing drums i shouldn't say real drummer but the the one song that features another musician is the tail end song navigating the simulation but sambati is a santana song the great santana hit I wanted to on this recording have play songs I've 
all my other recordings were all originals. I wanted to finally do a record that showed that clearly I was a really, really good violinist playing a very good. So what, by the way, if you do originals, well, you, that's too wide open. People, I can just say, well, that's what I'm feeling. But when you start playing the music of Charlie Parker, when you start playing the music of Carl Santana or Coltrane, I have one. I'm playing Marvin Gaye. I'm playing Aretha Franklin. I'm playing How High the Moon. If you look at the laundry list of music on that recording, it's like the top 10 of R&B and, and jazz. So it was my Kenny Mac moment. If Kenny Mac was listening to me, he'd say, all right, all right, youngster. Yeah, you're playing the masterwork. So in the end, the thing about string jazz theory is it's almost like a Ric Flair moment. Whether you like it or don't like it, you have to learn to love it because there's nobody else doing it today. That's funny. Ric Flair moment. <laughs> 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 so tell me tell me about this next song, Samba Pati. Yeah, Abraxas album, Santana, one of his big instrumental hits. Santana said he had heard a saxophone player playing out his bedroom window, and he wrote Samba Pati. I wanted to do something uh, uh, that was instrumental. So Samba uh -huh. Pati was a Santana song that was instrumental. I'm trying what to was that, on, was that on the first album? Was that on Abraxas? Yeah, Abraxas. That's okay. Okay. Yes. Yes. Such a cool song. Oh, and, you do, I, and 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 like I said in the first one, Yardbird Suite, I got lost. You brought me right back and brought me right into it with your version of Samba Pati. Yeah. Yeah. That was pretty. You know, my decision to include it came in the very, it was the last song added to the recording. Really? Yeah. And uh, I, I was, I've gotten to the point. You know, recording was released, I uh, was on July 1st. I got to the point where I had to end the recording. It was getting to the point where over the course of that year of, of practicing and recording it and, and putting it all together, the recording in and of itself made me a better musician, right? Because I'm having to, like, get good takes and all this stuff. But I had to end it because I was starting to get so... I was getting better by doing the recording. And if I didn't stop right then, I'd end up going and start to work on the first song again. Oh, <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? So I said, You need to shut this down. I was also, I was also getting mixed stupid. I had heard so many mixes in my in ear pods, in the car, on the speakers, you know, and you're producing this by yourself. It's not like you have a second ear. This, and that. well, my daughter's a good ear, you know, and uh, uh, so it was, uh, I had to finish it up. But, but it, uh, does, I, it does. It eventually it all starts sounding the same, even though they're not. They're entirely yes. different. It all starts to sound the same when you yes. walk away from it. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So yeah, no. This added uh, took me about a week to to perform all the tracks. You know, in a situation where you are going to be the performer of all the music, it's very when you look at Sam Apati, You know, it's not that easy to do this because it feels like it doesn't feel like this one person playing. But I have a lot of, of experience with with delayed recording. It's not my preference. I would have preferred on this album to have a full band. Okay. But the logistics and the availability of people that could actually play what's on that record on the level I wanted, it would have never come out this year. So I said, you know what, dude? You, you, you know what it is you want to be heard. You just might as well go play it so you get this thing out by July. Yeah. But, uh, uh, you know, bottle rocket and then, then put the band together later. So I do have a band in the making, Jerry Brown. I don't know if you may remember the great drummer Jerry Brown. Yeah. Was on my, yeah, Jerry's a good friend. He was on my Healing Intentions album back in 2000. And, uh, 
1996, Healing Attentions, our old friend, we produced that album together, and I just spoke to him last week, and uh, he'll be on drums, and, um, you know, complete the ensemble this year, trying to get some shows going. That's really yeah, cool. Yeah. I mean, you've done this yeah. for so many years, and you've got so many in your network to put together an all-star band. Yes. Oh, oh, yeah. The, the, the challenge right now is where to play, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I, I, I where I, I do live right now, Orlando, Florida, and even South Florida, is almost like a dead zone for the kind of music I am playing at this time. Uh -huh. uh, I probably, in terms of available places to play. So it looks like I uh, will probably launch the live shows out of Atlanta first and then giddy up on to uh, New York. So we'll do a little stump, Fun. Well, Daryl, we're gonna uh, we're gonna segue here into this song, your version of Santana's Asamba Pati, and come back and talk about one more of your songs. I'm gonna talk to you about jazz festivals and specifically the Discover Jazz Festival up here in Vermont. But right now, Daryl Dobson, Samba Pati. <laughs>
Samba Pati with Daryl Dobson from Winter Park, Florida. I'm your host, Tom Pollard, on the Music of America podcast. Founded in 1999, Jazz Generation has three complimentary programs that promote both live jazz as an art form and the performing arts as a cultural asset in New York City. They're the Jazz Standard Discovery Program, the Jazz Standard Youth Orchestra, and since 2014, Keyed Up. KU. It's an anti-poverty program offering services that support professional jazz artists in their performing careers while revitalizing local businesses. Now, all these programs are intended to develop a whole new generation of public audiences and performers. Keyed Up is the one I really get jazzed about, no pun intended. It's their most recent program started in 2014 by, it, it started by rescuing pianos destined for the dumpster. They position these into smaller venues like coffee shops, bookstores, known for hospitality. And then they ask the venue to chip in what they could to cover the expense of the musician. Then Jazz Discovery Program, or specifically Keyed Up, kicks in the balance of the musician's compensation. It's a cool, cool concept to help promote jazz in New York. And we've been talking enough about it today with Daryl that you know that jazz in New York are synonymous. Need your help. Need your support. Check them out, jazzgeneration.org. So, Daryl, that group came about probably since you've been gone, but it's a really mm. neat organization. Mm. And uh, yeah, you, chance, you get back up there, man. Drop me a line and I'll hook you up with the right guys because uh, they're doing a lot of good. They're doing a lot of good to bring jazz to the youngsters. And, and mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. don't have instruments. They're getting them instruments now. And they're giving them like live, live jam sessions. And the, the things that we grew up when jazz yeah. was coming into this whole new era. You brought up Weather Report. I think of Spyro Gyro, Weather Report, all of those guys at Chikoria that all came out from our era. Yeah. And yeah, these guys are just getting a taste of that now. And that's what this organization does. Not to go off on a, on a big yeah. thing about yeah. jazz generation. but Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will be. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to, like I say, my, my thing. I really want to perform live a lot this year. Yeah. Now that the recording's got some legs. Getting some good airplay, but it's off the chain on social media. The recording, it's just off the chain by the social media campaign. Like I have yeah. so many people that are checking it. Yeah. Now you're so, saying that 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 your music isn't that necessarily that accepted in the Orlando Winter Park area. Area. No, correct. When I moved to Burlington about eight nine years ago, uh, Discover Jazz is a big jazz festival they have up here. Now you know COVID came, they revamped things. But it used to be a ten. It used to be a ten day festival, and it mm. would begin like on the Thursday when the musicians would start coming in. The Thursday before the mm -hmm. weekend was kind of an impromptu wherever show, and that's when you saw the musicians in in the raw. You know, that's where you mm -hmm. saw this headliner just at this little dive over here, just mm. up and maybe blowing his horn, or maybe just get playing his five string. You know, whatever. Mm -hmm. and, but then Friday was the show, and when Friday through the following Sunday. Mm -hmm. So it was a 10-day festival. Now it's down to about five because they've gone through some revamping, et cetera, et cetera. But when you were yeah. talking about your music not being accepted and, and the different jazz musicians I've talked to around the country already in this podcast, there are jazz festivals at places I didn't even know about, like Burlington. You know, yeah. the Montreal Jazz Fest, that just makes sense to me because we're an hour and a half from Montreal. The Montreal Jazz Festival is worldwide. It's huge. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense that we would get some of that spill over here. 
But I was yes. wondering, is that a venue then? Is that what you would do to get Daryl Dobson's sound out there? Would you hit all the jazz festivals? And how do you go about doing that? Well, and, you know, like everything, it's all marketing promotion. Um, I'm a marketing promotion guy. I used to produce uh, a lot of commercials for advertising agencies. So advertising and marketing is not something I'm familiar with. So I'm the com- I'm the... The, the, the chameleon of jazz. Um, so, you know, part of the success of even string jazz theory has been my success in using social media, e-blasting, radio, all these things to reach out to key contacts, even in the area of venues and concerts. So, oh, okay. But, but I'm not, I don't know yet how successful it will be because to tell you the truth, Jeff, I'm just getting to that point now, the recording I wanted to do, you know, three or four months of good digital promotion, and now I'm just getting ready to push the live button. I think you'll see me do a show in Atlanta. You know, being that the material I'm playing is very well known, like what jazz musician doesn't know A-Train, right. you know, the, the trend I see now is a lot that even guys like Cobham, Cobham played, every, every every show Billy Cobham plays, he has a different band. I didn't because know that, really. You know, but, well, it's the economics I guess right now, yeah. you know, in other words, if, if I'm playing, if enough people know, if the people are uh, jazz is universal, so he's playing for these people. I don't need to carry a band all the way to France since the guys in France know how to play Stratus anyway. Is it as good as the original? Good enough. Um, so in my case, though, it's almost more exciting for me to go places and use whatever band is in the jazz club because I want to, I want to, I want to. I would almost prefer that right now. So even in Atlanta, I'm going to go up to Atlanta and blast these people out for a week. I'm walking in. I'm just, listen, when Charlie Parker hits the ride on the freight train and got to New York, they said he hopped off and walked right up onto the goddamn bandstand. That, that's where it's going to happen. If you've got balls and you can play, you got to have the, you know, they want some jazz musicians are extremely courageous people. They put a lot on the line. Well, you, you, know, have very you have to. You have to. Yeah, you're right. Your whole, your whole music is a challenge. Your whole music is daring. You know? Yeah. And the fact that now, just imagine when Daryl Dobson goes to Atlanta unannounced and just walks in and says, let's play, take the A train. That's, yeah. that, that's it. That's it. That's my, that's my next promotion event. I believe in a sense, and I've seen this happening with the, uh, you know, the dissolving of labels really actively promoting jazz. You know, the re- half of the reason why Mom Beach New Orchestra was popular was, I hate to break to everybody, was the advertising. It's always the advertising. Yeah, yeah. B- big labels were advertising agencies that sold records. And when I went up to Columbia Records as a kid, they were going to sign us. It was an art department. It was a, you know, media department. It was just like an advertising agency. It's just the product wasn't a car. It was a record. And airplay was something that that the that the 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 big labels controlled through legal payola. There was a ton of ways that airplay could be influenced. So, given that now, I believe that music, in a sense, has become more localized. In other words, right now to to have a, a national consciousness about your music would take millions of dollars. If you wanted a national consciousness in 30 days, well, yeah, you're living in a society that, uh, what does Beyonce wants? what, how many thousands, what for a ticket? I mean, you, you got to cut through 
you know, amazing amounts of stupidity, mediocrity, and clutter. So jazz become, returns to being local. Yeah. The, 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 I, I believe in many sense, I'm seeing the relocalization of our society. I see America becoming much more local because the economics is such as, say, like a, a, a Vermont festival being able to uh, pay a great jazz artist from New Orleans. The, uh, you know, the economics may say, well, let's keep everything going, but let's just reach local, reach local. So my consciousness is, is be local. Be local Atlanta, you know, be local New York. Yeah. Uh, do, do the digital, do the advertising. But as Kenny Mack would say, listen, you got to, if you can play, you get up on that bandstand and do it. Everything else will happen. Trust me. So, yeah. No. So this 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 last song now. Navigate. I'm going to read the whole title as it was sent to me. Navigating the simulation part two. Parenthetically, moving beyond time. Close parentheses. That's one of the longest titles of a damn song I've ever heard in my life. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, there was a navigating the simulation part one. It came out on two two twenty two on February second. 2022. Uh -huh. So it was actually my first recording after I get back to land. And it featured myself, mm -hmm. Navelli Radhakrishna from India on violin, and Demetrius Williams, a young drummer I had been introduced to on the internet. And it, all three of us in our own studios, and they sent me their tracks, and, and we put together this Navigating the Simulation, a beautiful recording. It was it didn't feature me on violin, but it was my first introduction back on land to say to everyone, hey, Daryl Dobson's back. The fusion guitarist you knew and loved is back. Uh -huh. and, and he's doing his Mahavishnui Indian fusion -y thing. The yeah. theme navigating the simulation has to do with simulation theory, which I started to study when I was living on the boat. And it was based on the notion that we're living in a simulation. And I began to read more about it, and I started to see evidence of that. And that's where that music started to become created. I started to see the signs that we are essentially in a Sims game with external control. The good news is the person that's controlling you externally if from the other dimension is actually you. And then this version then is... Now... It's the secret. Correct. But on this one, I'm playing the violin. Right. So I couldn't play the violin on two two twenty two, but on seven twenty one twenty twenty three, I put out a record with me playing a double five string violin. That's cool. We're gonna give it a listen, and it's navigating the simulation part two with Daryl Dobson, the Music of America podcast.
Navigating the simulation part two. And one more quick question, Daryl. Why is it subtitled Moving Beyond Time? That was my experience when I when I got back to land. I started to feel like that um, I was somewhat of an ability to accelerate my learning or, or accelerate time. I felt like I had gained this knowledge. I read about it in simulation theory. So I feel like I gained that knowledge. Most people don't like to talk about it because it's almost like secret kind of knowledge, you know, and you could, people could say that you're a nut also. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, but, but again, I didn't make simulation theory, many credible physicists. This is their solution to explain our universe. So that's what I felt like my whole experience that I moved beyond the traditional tick, tick seconds that, I, I somehow was able to do things quicker. Like I was almost moving beyond time. That's cool. All right. Well, the last segment of our show, we call shameless self-promotion. So Daryl, where can we buy your merch? Where can we buy your albums and CDs? Where can we see you? First off, you know, I'd say that the core of where everything is uh, in, in terms of my albums, listening and downloading all that stuff is my website, DarylDobsonJazz.com. But you know, my, my first name is a little weird spelling, D-A-R-Y-L-L, DarylDobsonJazz.com. And you'll see a lovely list of all of my, my albums, because String Jazz Theory is my eighth recording um, over the span of, of, of 30 years. So there's a lot of great stuff to listen to. Ah, and when you hit Daryl Dobson Jazz, you'll see links to Spotify, YouTube Music, all that kind of stuff. You know, I don't have that much merchandise right now, but the music is pretty much free to listen to you go to youtube music um spotify apple music all that stuff um i have a lot of cool i did play a show this year already on uh may 25th i played at the orlando fringe fest and there's some cool footage of me playing the songs from string dance theory you know what i and what i did was i was able to take all of the background track with a solo performance so i had to remix the entire record minus violin and go and play along to it. The first time, it's actually the first time I ever played to a track. It was pretty cool in a way, yeah, but it's, yeah. it's kind of spooky. But um, that's also another way to experience it is my YouTube channel features me playing Strange Jazz Theory live. Little segments and clips. That was on the 25th. Uh, moving ahead, yeah, live performances coming. I would say um, I'm starting to push the booking button. Uh, I'm thinking of maybe September, October. I'm looking for maybe October for Atlanta. No kidding. Uh, okay. Yeah. October for Atlanta. Um, and I'd like to be consistently there. And then we drift on up to see if we can get some action happening in New York. So definitely we're going to close out the year with, I'd like to have a, a string of performances between Atlanta and New York. I really don't want to do anything online and, uh, yeah. you know, that's, uh, I, 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 I want to, uh, listen, you. I love Burlington. I must tell you that when I, after I graduated from Westbury College, a girlfriend that I had, she had moved up to Burlington, and every weekend we were still kind of you know liked each other. This and that, and that wonderful girl Denise, and I used to. She loved Burlington, and I used to go up almost every other weekend and visit beautiful Burlington, Lake Champlain. Yeah, yeah. I never got a chance. I got. I never got a chance to see Champ, but everyone said, "No, he's there." <laughs> I, I I loved so many things about Burlington. Uh, and I was there in the winter and in the summer, breathtaking. I loved everything being made out of maple, the, the maple sugar. 
Mm. Oh my god! And my coffee. Oh. I, I got so burned oh. out on on maple when I moved up here. I jokingly tell tell people that they put maple in their toilet paper. It's just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a wonderful place it's and nice. so beautiful. And um, you know, I loved it. I breathtaking. We'll get you up there, man. Have to get you up there for to. Jazz Fest, yeah. Well, Daryl, thank do. you. It's been wonderful. We will have you back because we're going to do a show. You and me are going to do a show just on the history of jazz because you're just a, a a warehouse of knowledge. And we're we're an hour into this. I could do this for three more hours with you. Uh, I would love to. I would we, love to. I love talking about this. I love to. We we may not have any listeners, but I I dig it. You know. <laughs> no no no. Listen, listen. Hashtag this stuff. Hashtag because I do have a lot of viewers that are. I'm going to once you send me links, there's going to be a lot of viewers that are going to listen to That's this. That's great. We've been okay. with, all right, man. Thank you so much, Daryl. We've been with Daryl Dobson, Winter Park, Florida, and the Music of America podcast continues up next. Pam Jackson, that's Jackson with an X. She's from Davie, Florida. She'll be with us tomorrow on the Music of America podcast. You've been listening to the Music of America podcast. If you like today's show, please go to the website at www.musicofamericapod.com or our Music of America podcast Facebook page. Like us and follow the show and episodes. We tally the votes of all our shows, and the most listened to shows will be rebroadcast on our best of shows at the end of the season. I look forward to having you with us again and listening to the Music of America.